0: Podo.
1: Welcome to the Ned Lard Radio Hour. I'm Nick Hilton. Welcome. You've got mail. For those who don't know me, and really, why should you? I run a small podcast company here in London whose ident you'll have heard before the theme music. I also write long, attritional blogs about our technological futures, in which I usually conclude that we are largely fucked. It was after one of these blogs, which, for some reason, the alchemy of the algorithm, you might say, reached thousands and thousands of poor, innocent souls, that I received an email in my inbox. Ping. It was from a lifelong career technologist, someone who's made a living and a reputation off the back of preaching the good gospel of innovation. They had read one of my pieces, liked it, and wanted to chime in with their own thoughts. Flattered, I wrote back, and we began a correspondence. Ned, as I'll call them, knows things that I don't. Ned knows how to run a business, a big one, at least, and how to develop products. If I'm in the corner playing the piccolo, Ned has played the whole damn orchestra. I immediately started trying to convince them to do a podcast for me, or with me, but various business and investment interests, not to mention other media commitments, made it impossible. Instead, we cooked up this ruse, a new Ned Ludd, who would send me snippets of a manifesto each week for me to broadcast to listeners. The Ned Ludd manifesto will be available online, piece by piece, as it is assembled in the coming months. But here's the first gobit, the first piece of wisdom. I told Ned only that I wanted to start this series by talking about work and the nature thereof. How would it change in the coming years? So here's what Ned emailed me back a few weeks ago on this subject. Entry number one, the right to work, and that's in all caps if you can't tell. There is a right to work. It is not the same as or analogous to income rights. It is closer to the right to purpose. A cat has the purpose of catching mice. A dog has the purpose of companionship. Man has the purpose of work. In the future, technology will limit that purpose. Some will grow richer and some will grow poorer. That equilibrium will be seen as a product of ineffect. Automation and machinization will be seen as net neutral. But what will be lost if man is stripped of purpose? A fat cat lying in the sun, a dog dragging its ass across the carpet? We work because it is a human impulse even when it is not a human necessity. Take someone's purpose away and they are depleted. They become a zoo exhibit. A penguin pecking at the concrete where a sardine once was. A panda gnawing its gums bloody on eucalyptus. We have a right to purpose, which means we have a right to work. Now, putting aside the fact that I think even schoolchildren know that pandas eat bamboo and not eucalyptus, Ned is getting to the core of the issue, and the core of this podcast. For those who are not familiar with British history, let me take you back to the turn of the 19th century. It is rumoured, whispered along the historical grapevine, that a man named Ned Ludd smashed up a couple of knitting machines. This was in 1779, just as machines were starting to take the jobs usually given to low-paid workers. Ludd, a weaver from Leicestershire, is said to have taken out his rage on the machines after being flogged for idleness. Within a few decades, the veracity of Ludd's identity would be lost forever, but the name would live on. The Luddites became an organized band of frame breakers in the 1810s. They fought the industrial revolution as it rolled out across England's green and pleasant land and they lost. They lost big time. In fact, they lost so badly that the reality of their name became a victim of the mists of time. Luddite went from meaning a group of people who fight back against industrialization taking their jobs to meaning people who don't understand technology. I'm a bit of a Luddite, people often tell me when I ask them to perform simple technological tasks. I don't know how to send an attachment, I don't know how to upload a PDF, I don't know how to share it on Facebook. I'm a bit of a Luddite, see? But the new Ned Ludd is of a piece with the old Ned Ludd, because Luddism is, at heart, a labour movement. Now, this podcast doesn't have a political agenda. I'm sceptical about the trends in technology and will oppose the dogma that more technology necessarily equals better technology until my dying day. But I also like my computer, my phone, my smartwatch. Not only do I rely upon technology for my business interests, I like it. I like technology. In the coming weeks, you'll hear a lot of interviews and discussions on the Ned Ludd Radio Hour. They'll share, perhaps, a concern about the direction of travel but they won't be calling for us to dig holes, cover ourselves with twigs and wait for the apocalypse. This is not a call to return to pre-industrial lifestyles, but it is an attempt to get people to reflect on the costs of progress and ask big questions about the road we're taking. That doesn't just mean artificial intelligence, even though that's a subject that should keep us all up at night. It means everything from screen dependence to misinformation, access to knowledge and its gatekeeping and curation. It means asking what is distinct about the lives of Generation Z, or Z for my American listeners, compared to millennials and Gen Xs and boomers. It means tackling hardware issues as well as software, and looking ahead to a very uncertain future. But it also means starting at the beginning, with the world of work, because like it or not, we are headed for a cliff edge. Artificial intelligence and automation are coming for some of our jobs. They won't be replacing the Prime Minister with ChatGPT or the Governor of the Bank of England with Bard. They won't be swapping Christopher Nolan out for Dali or Martin Scorsese for Mid-Journey. But stealthily, and it's happening already, fat that can be trimmed will be cut from the great Labour stake. And that means that the people who are least empowered to protest will be the first to go. I saw a tweet the other day that, to use that very British phrase, boiled my piss. It read... I don't think people understand just how quickly many jobs will be replaced by AI. Example, Midjourney and DALI 3 are now good enough that I find it hard to believe I'll need to hire a graphic designer. Knowledge work is going to have a reckoning. Now this genre of tweet will be familiar to people who have stuck with the artist formerly known as Twitter during its transition to X, and as the AI journey has gripped the imagination of every huckster on the planet. But the idea of relishing a reckoning against graphic designers is terrifying. Graphic design, a beset-upon industry that has spent decades having budgets cut, work outsourced or in-housed, an industry which is constantly prey to intellectual property theft or cheap shortcutting, is undoubtedly going to be impacted by the rise of AI. But a reckoning? The dictionary definition, and I appreciate this makes it sound like I'm giving a bad best-man speech, of a reckoning is the avenging or punishing of past misdeeds or mistakes. This is what some people believe is headed for graphic designers. If graphic designers have made one mistake, it's to have talent and skill in a world that no longer much values either of those things. The group most impacted by changes to the nature of work are those whose work has in a way been least changed over the years of the digital revolution. If you could draw a pretty picture in 1900, you could draw a pretty picture in 2000. Computers, who were taking everything away from analysts and product developers and shopkeepers, couldn't take that away. But now they can. In order to discuss all this, I dialed up Gavin Mueller. Gavin's a media studies professor at the University of Amsterdam and the author of a book, Breaking Things at Work. Helpfully, that book has the subtitle The Luddites were right about why you hate your job, which makes him the perfect person to help explore some of these issues. And don't worry, I too am an ignoramus when it comes to issues of political economy, so we'll be desperately trying to steer the conversation back to safer intellectual ground. Stick with it, because this is the start of our journey back into the light.
0: Uh, I'm Gavin Mueller, I'm in Amsterdam, and it is four minutes past eleven, according to apple uh who i think uh, sets their standards these days
1: should we should we trust them or should we be going
0: (laughs) i think i think it's if everyone's using it then that's kind of the standard isn't it
1: okay all time is is whatever we conform to gavin you're a kind of you're, you're a leading expert on the um on the nature of of work i guess um particularly from this kind of critical what i what i would define as maybe a critical kind of marxist standpoint but maybe you'll say that's wrong and and that's that's fine, but but I want to first um, go back to the Luddites because the, the the subtitle of your most recent book is, and I want to get this word for word: the Luddites were right about why you hate your job. Firstly, tell me what the Luddites were saying in order for them to be right about anything.
0: Well, the Luddites were uh, they were uh, people who worked in textile industry in the Midlands and of England mostly. Uh, in the early 19th century, and they're sort of famous because uh, they were these kind of skilled craftspeople, had sort of these vibrant communities, um, uh, and a respected a respected trade uh, that they had a legal right to control. Uh, and in the uh, sort of uh, early decades of the Industrial Revolution, uh, they were some of the first people to sort of feel the impact of uh, new forms of mechanization uh, and the rise of the factory system more generally as uh, machines that would um, do a lot of the things that they would do with textiles, with weaving, with manufacture of stockings uh, became to be implemented in the industry. And so they weren't needed uh, anymore. Uh, Their wages would go down, they would lose work uh, and they very quickly perceived this as a kind of existential sort of threat. Um, So they mobilized, uh, you know, this is a time when uh, unions, uh, they were called combinations at the time. That was actually illegal, uh, forbidden uh, under penalty of death. Uh, But they organized themselves to uh, try to stop this transformation of the industry and to try to um, create um, a fairer, uh, what they saw as a fairer kind of economy and a way of doing things, um, and most notably, uh, they they engage in a variety of different actions. Most most sort of infamously, uh, they resorted to actually smashing uh, machines of, of uh, mill owners that refused to cooperate with how they wanted to do things. So that we we they uh, have a reputation of this kind of. Um, technophobic outburst. And so that's when you hear the term Luddite today. Uh, It's usually people who are describing some sort of uh, refusal to use new technology or uh, inability to understand it. Um, But um, part of the argument that I'm making in the book is that we need to, um, and it's not a something that i came up with other people have made this argument as well uh that we need to understand this specifically as a labor struggle and that we can actually uh think about this helps us to think about the way that technology is uh restructuring work in our contemporary moment okay
1: well before we go on to talk in a bit more detail about the kind of the labor implications you're an american if i if i may be so bold yes um and and the luddites are a sort of they're a sort of British thing, and obviously I've branded this podcast um and this may not be marketing one o one. How much kind of cultural penetration do does the Luddite movement have in the u s Is it just you know something that people say when they can't can't get an app to work on their phone or is it like is it taught in schools? Is there a sense of the history
0: uh i mean you you're not going to get a uh yeah did i did I get much about the Luddites in my public school education no the the, the answer is no, but they are they are sort of remembered. Um, in, in the this kind of for this sort of technophobic stereotype it 's still a term that 's used mm. um, and also there have been it is it is a you know there was a bit of a, a, a flourishing of uh, a, a, a bit of an anti technology movement in the '90s that uh, that described itself as neo luddite uh, you also have some kind of homegrown uh, te- resistance against technology uh, in the states. You have, uh, uh, you know, not 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 that I endorse any of this, but uh, you have, you know, sort of the Ted Kaczynski, you know, moving to the, his shack in the middle it's, of the woods. I'm delighted
1: we have clarified uh, the the non-endorsement and, of the universe. Yeah,
0: um, and then um, th- and then there's a whole kind of uh, anarcho-primitivist uh, scene, sort of based mostly in the the Pacific Northwest of the United States. But I mean, we could trace kind of these sympathies, right? I think this is a, this is a, we we could trace the sympathies, you know, back further, right? We have, um, you know, uh, 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 Henry Thoreau, who's, you know, rejects the modern world, um, uh, and lives in the woods and this kind of romantic ideal, uh, still has a great pull over people. And I think that was one thing that I wanted to work through in the book is that, to me, this critical perspective on technology that that people are not uh, always so happy to embrace the newest things and to to say yes, this is progress, this is the future. That there's a lot of um, uh, ambivalence or even antipathy. To that I wanted to uh, hold on to that as something that people who are interested in sort of larger, sort of radical change um, should take seriously. Not that we need to be romantics living in the woods, and certainly not that we need to be. Uh, sending package bombs. Uh, I, I'm not, none of that necessarily, but 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 the idea that that everyone uh, you know, whether in the UK or in the US or in other places in the world, uh, is like a, you know, sort of uncritical, uh, uh, have has an uncritical embrace of, of technological progress. I don't think it's true, right? And 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 in I was working through this in a moment where there was a real kind of search for you know, um, how can we get um, how can people who are interested in sort of larger systemic change, larger sort of uh, and and radical politics, um, build up a kind of appeal and understanding with a, a you know sort of, of a larger base? Um, you know, this is something that um, uh, you know. Started not started but but, but became very interesting you know around the occupy movement and the sort of mm-hmm. wave after that so that was kind of part of what I was thinking I mean there was also a lot of really esoteric internal left debate about it that was also sort of something that motivated me on this path but yeah I think I think do the, are the Luddites well understood in the US. I think only through this kind of more mythic reputation, but in some ways that was also kind of the genius of the, of the Luddites, is they created. Uh, they didn't. They didn't say we're the Yorkshire textile workers. They they created this mythical figure. They created this kind of amorphous banner, uh, and, uh, and and that sort of seemed to uh, elevate the movement and give it a kind of strength uh, that uh, in its own time, as well as in its kind of historical legacy.
1: Well, well, listeners will um, note that we're not communicating via smoke signals or, or or whatnot. So the assumption, I guess, that always comes up is that the Luddites failed. I mean, it was a it was a movement that, like Knut, sort of asking the tides to regress at his command, like failed to stop the um, the march of technology, technologization, and kind of the industrial revolution. The industrial revolution is one of three topics along with the Tudors and the Second World War, which is taught relentlessly at Mm -hmm. British schools. So this is why all British people, I think, roughly know what the Luddites are. The Luddites failed. Why did they fail and sort of where does it leave us now?
0: I think it is fair to say that they failed, right? Um, They not only uh, did not uh, uh, change uh, did not stop uh, prevent the implementation of mechanization in their industry. They they were as a movement crushed uh, militarily. Uh, they were also as an industry, as a as a sort of um, community of skilled craft workers. They were completely devastated in a generation. Essentially, uh, people were left destitute and you know scattered to the winds. So yeah, why why uh, pick up? Uh, you know, this is very un-American, in fact, right? Why don't we pick the winning side, right? Or what what can we learn from this? I mean, to me, the ultimate failure of something is not always the best way to. Assess what we can what we can get from from something like social movement, or something like a, even a, any other kind of historical period.
1: But um, can I ask whether, as a, as a social movement, did yeah. it have a sort of afterlife? Or was it that was it that every generation had a sort of whether it's internalized Luddite tendency, or whether it's someone who actually harks back to the Luddites and says, you know, maybe we should be doing this now because we've always had. These problems with technology, basically every generation has. Was it kind of kept alive? The, the flame? Uh,
0: in in some ways, yes. I mean, you had in in uh, so a lot of Luddites were actually uh, the, deported to Australia, and Australia actually has a history of a uh, fairly strong and and militant uh, labor movements. That some people argue this is uh, this is beyond my particular expertise, but some people argue has roots in um, the the Luddites and other other sort of um, political uh, prisoners who were who were exiled there, they became a part of, uh, of the culture there, of the, of the politics there, the, and particularly the labor politics. Um, I think you see, uh, and part of the argument I make in the book is even if there's not a sort of direct lines of influence, right, like people saying, yes, oh, look at what the Luddites did, we'll do that but better. Um, you see uh, what I try to demonstrate in the book and argue in the book is that throughout the uh, uh, the history of labor under capital you see resistance to these kinds of technologies and that's not necessarily because like i said it's not because they're like saying oh uh, they're they're taking direct inspiration from a past social movement it has to do with the continuation of exploitative uh dynamics mm-hmm. that technology is a part of um in a in a capitalist economy so um And so part of what I want to do is say it's not just about looking to the Luddites, but actually understanding that there's a longer tradition here of uh, critical perspectives on contemporary technology that emerges in labor struggles, emerges often in grassroots ways, um, emerges often through uh, people who are a bit closer to the lived experience of workers rather than Um, intellectuals who are sort of uh, creating sort of broad uh, strategies, uh, pictures of strategy and things like that. Um, So I try to reconstruct a lot of debates uh, and and say, look, the people who were, you know, these, um, uh, for instance, in Johnson Forest tendency in the middle of the 20th century in the U.S., uh, you know, they're intellectuals, they're theorists, uh, wrote a lot of really uh, fantastic stuff, uh, but also were not sort of um in a university system. They were like a Trotskyist organizing cell that was like in daily contact with workers and developed... Uh, critical perspectives on automation um, as it was unfolding in the 1940s and 50s uh, in a way that other uh, sort of Marxist intellectuals, uh, such as the Frankfurt School and and Sartre and people like that were um, not as conversant in. And so that was also kind of, um, uh, you know, something I wanted to demonstrate in this work is like, well, you know, if we take seriously the experiences of of workers um then we find that you know stretching back all the way to the dawn of of capitalist industry um this this kind of thread of 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 of, of critical uh, understanding and um and and also you know militant opposition
1: okay the theory is 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 exciting but wh- where it is really exciting is where it approaches reality i guess which is looking at this now from the outside of you know obviously not an academic and um I'm just someone who is kind of quite scared of the current trends. I'm also, you know, someone who's marketing a podcast about how how important this is. But um, are we at another kind of critical point? It feels like maybe the Luddites marked the first step in automation of physical labor, you know, manual labor. And now we're we're really at that kind of first step of the automation of basically all other labor forms. Or am I just sensationalizing that? You know, how, how important is the present moment with the development of AI and, and the kind of the total automation of our lives?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we are at a pivotal moment technologically and also in the sort of broad contours of political economy where um, with uh, sort of... Uh, well, some people call it a polycrisis of, uh, you know, environmental can't, can't catastrophe, slowing growth rates, uh, pandemic, uh, and these types of things all kind of converging at one point. Uh, I think the 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 sort of uh, dawning consensus is that things are not going to be able to go on as they were. Uh, Automation is often uh, raised as part of this sort of more general sort of crisis, right? The idea that, yeah, now things aren't, we won't even have work, right? There won't be jobs for people. I think um, one argument that I try to make in the book is that we have to understand automation in uh, a sort of more granular way, as not something that is always about replacing work, but is often restructuring work, restructuring it in ways that uh, are, are uh, that increase exploitation, that degrade the quality of work, and that often degrade the quality of output. Uh, this is actually something the original luddites uh were were very vocal about They said not only are you taking our jobs but the the products are are really bad you're you're you 're destroying our rep- the industry 's reputation here and if we look at something uh like uh what uh, a chat g p t type of uh program can produce compared to what a a, a fairly competent human author can produce. I think we see something quite similar there. But also what we'll probably see, or what the specter is is being raised, is that we won't have, for instance, AI completely replacing uh, writers. What we'll have is AI will generate this bulk of mediocrity, and then you'll have people who at un- another time, would have been writers in their own right who will have to clean it up. Uh, and in fact, this is precisely what the um, uh, the the Writers Guild in the United States uh, in the entertainment industry is on strike about. Uh, they it, it, their demands are very clear. They say, "Look, we are not going to become these sort of uh, janitors for AI uh, generated material." Uh, and and it's not because they necessarily dislike AI or they hate ChatGPT or anything like that. They it'll mean that they will be paid uh, much less than they're paid right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rates are much lower for that type of work, and that is actually a great sort of encapsulation of how automation tends to work. Um, so I I think that we're not we shouldn't be concerned about a future where robots take our jobs strictly in terms of replacement, but where we will have, where work will be worse, work will be more precarious, work will be paid less um, because, uh, you know, accurately or not, the idea is, well, the machines are doing the, the, the hard stuff, right? And it, it, it does, it, it's less about, I think, the way to understand it is that technology becomes a, a tool for saying, okay, now things are different. So um, labor needs to get a, a smaller share. Uh, and, and you know that's not always really sort of accurate in 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 how you might sort of calculate how value is produced uh but that's precisely how we need to understand these new technologies as as having a kind of rhetoric of their own and and being used as a as a as an as a kind of uh wedge um by the people who are owning it who are deploying it right to um, to, to erode, further erode um, what we have. So um, uh, whether that goes on, I think will have a lot to do with um, how uh, organized labor uh, and uh, deals with it, and also how less than organized labor organizes itself, in part uh, due to these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but but clearly i think we're we'll live um uh, you know as mao said in interesting times uh, uh where things will not be quite uh what they were whether that is for better or for worse uh, you know that will be um I think that's harder to predict. Are,
1: are you actually are you actually yeah. on the fence fence about this, or are you kind of being be equivocal for the sake of
0: on on um, the fence about? So, sorry, what in particular?
1: About about whether the, the rise of AI and automation in, in these sort of creative industries will be a good or a bad thing? Do you in your mind oh, have a have a much stronger I, prediction?
0: Yeah, I think uh, first of all, I'm a I'm a university professor, so I'm on the front lines of reading chat GPT generated material. Uh, to me, it seems like the main the main use case, in fact, is to forge term papers. Um, for this, uh, and it's not very good at it. Uh, I, you know, I, you don't have to read uh, a lot of them to start. You recognize this sort of really uh, banal kind of um, empty but competent style of a ChatGPT generated text, right? So I, I don't like reading it. I, I, I mean, you feel. I mean, I'm trying to teach people, right? I, I'm not trying to read great stuff. That's what I have to do in my free time. My, you know, how I pay the rent is I, I read, you know, young people who are the ideas they're learning how to do it. Um, so, so it's, it's it's objectionable to me because it's it's really upsets that entire process. I I, I tell these tell students like I'm not interested in right is reading a perfect paper. I'm interested in Improving your ability to think and construct an argument and do research. Um, So, well, will I mean, you know, I think I'm eager often to point out the ways that these programs fail to measure up to the hype. Uh, You know, ChatGPT is. Initially impressive, and then the more you use it, you you start seeing the flaws, the repetition, the weaknesses.
1: Right, but would the would the luddites recognize the textile manufacturing powerhouses in South Asia of today from from the stuff they were smashing up in back in their time?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what they what they were trying to defend was um, what I think most people want and 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 don't want to speak for them but i would imagine many people that work in garment industry uh which is notoriously sort of exploitative and also notoriously difficult to fully automate uh they've literally been working on it for 200 years and actually they haven't gotten so much further uh than they did in the the early 19th century um but um So I I think what they would recognize is that what they want is what what a lot of workers want. They want work that you have some that is – that compensates you, that um, uh, you have some sort of autonomy and control over, and in that sense gives you – a kind of, there's a kind of dignity and there's also a kind of, uh, you know, a a feeling of pride and accomplishment. These are craftspeople. Do I think that every job can be uh, some some creative in that way? I'm not sure. Maybe some or, you know, less so. Um, But I do think that what what we need to, you know, what we need to kind of hold on to is the idea that, uh, you know, the best way to restructure jobs isn't always to make them simpler and, uh, and, and uh, de-skill them, but is, in fact, to give people the opportunity to do things that they find interesting and fulfilling, right? Mm-hmm. So one person I write about um, in the book a bit is William Morris, another uh, uh, you know, important uh, uh, British intellectual, um, and he was very adamant about this. He was also a, a craft worker, uh, and he Terrific really, wallpaper. Uh, yeah, really great. I mean, designs that are still, you know, influential today. His idea was, and he, this is where he engaged uh, in debates with um, sort of other radical intellectuals of, of his time, As he said, the point is not to to uh, have machines do all the work for you. Um, the, the point is to have what he called worthy work, you know, work that would kind of, uh, it, you know, give you a feeling of satisfaction, challenge you, contribute to intellectual development. He thought that if you had, if you developed those kind of skills, it gave you a kind of. Um, it's almost like a a sort of civic kind of virtue, right? You understand how things work. You see more kind of contributions you can make, right? So his stories have like people who are really good at all all these different skills and they say, oh, well, you know, I can help my neighbor. I can contribute to my community this way. If you have a situation where your work is completely alienated, um, I think that uh there there is some kind of uh, uh, add on effects to that right that that the fact that that you lose touch with uh, how things are done and how things could be different mm. finally
1: then i want to ask you one sort of enormous question which you can't possibly answer in the the time allocated but um but in a few sentences the question is is work good because <laughs> i guess the question we're all wrestling with here with ah. with automation with ai is is this sense of purpose that I think is, is so innately important to humans. Mm. And in a world where like we can automate more things, we can get AIs to do more things, we reduce the amount of actual labor that humans have to do. Is that a good thing to aspire towards? Should we want more leisure time? Should we want this idea of um, fully automated luxury communism, which yes. is sort of <laughs> utopian and I think people without can get the idea of what it is without having to read up too much on it? Or is there some sort of inner craving for work in that sense of meaning?
0: I would not want to say there's an inner craving, um, but I think that people are productive. We keep ourselves busy, right? Um, I think what I, 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 I want to be clear um, I think that most people should work less. Uh, I think uh, that has historically been a demand of the labor movement that has been tabled for a long time. Um, I think most people. At their jobs, uh, feel uh, like they don't need to be there all the time, or what they do is pointless. Uh, I think that there's been some very interesting research also in the UK um, uh, by a particular uh, think tank that's doing a lot of research on, you know, if you do a 32-hour or 30-hour work week. There's some research in Scandinavia on this as well. Uh, people are actually exactly the same uh, level of productivity that they are at 40 hours. Right. So I think that there is definitely an argument to be made that we should work less and have more leisure. I don't think that that situation will come about because uh, technology will make it. So we don't have anything else to do. Mm -hmm. If what will, what will make a world with more leisure and less work will be, you know, politics uh, and, and, and making those demands and making them successfully. Um, so, um, I mean, because the, the, the thing we have to understand about a capitalist economy is everyone has to work. That's, that's the, the sort of uh, uh, modus operandi of it. Uh, so if an industry goes away, uh, it's not that work goes away. It's more work will be found. Right, so we had this massive economic crisis uh, not too long ago. Uh, growth rates, you know, uh, plummeted. Um, um, businesses went out of business. And what did people do? Well, they didn't. They didn't end up with more leisure, right? They ended up working uh, in the gig economy, right? Doing these jobs that we didn't have before. And I think we could question the value of people spending all their time delivering a lukewarm McDonald's uh, order to people? Uh, is that the best use, right? If, if we're living in a moment of crisis, if we are living through a time where we re- really need to seriously uh, uh, you know, work on how to uh, create a more sustainable, environmentally sustainable uh, kind of world and a world that is uh, less susceptible to global pandemics, well, that will take work. Um, but that's not the work. That's not the work that's valued. The, our, the economy right now does not channel productive activity in those directions necessarily. It channels them into other things, like uh, uh, being an influencer or, or these other kinds of, of making uh, a podcast. Uh, right. Well, I mean, you know, um, I. I mean, I think. I think in the future, like a, like a. I don't know if we'll have a fully automated luxury communism uh, society. I don't believe actually in full automation, right. Um, I think that is, um, yeah, that this is a, an oversimplified understanding of automation. But I think, yeah, if we had some sort of post-work utopia or less work utopia, right, you would be doing these things. You would, you could probably, be, you would, maybe you'd still be making a podcast, right? But you might be doing, uh, it might be, it might. Have a slightly different uh, format or perspective, right? If you're not trying to make a living at it, um, then it'll it'll open up new ways of doing things, right? Mm. Um, that will also be fulfilling, right? I mean, you want to do this, not you know, it's I, I don't think it's the easiest way to, to earn a living, right? Uh, but but there's there's something satisfying and interesting about that about doing it this way uh, and and I think that those aspects of of what of your work uh, could be elevated and enriched in a world and and then the, the, the other stuff you know like maybe you have to hustle and use a bunch of hashtags on on social media or upload to 15 different uh, you know podcasting services and like go on some other guy's podcast that you don't really like but he has a lot of listeners so you need to boost your brand you won't have to do that kind of stuff um that that's that's a waste of time and and it's just about navigating this um you know this sort of uh, thicket of algorithms that uh has has grown up around us right that's that's uh um, wasteful in so many ways and so that's i would you know that's kind of the the thing i'm really interested in in talking about uh, in thinking about now is um uh you know i think we can uh, put away some of the uh, more simplistic sort of utopian fantasies of of post work um, uh, leisure filled worlds, and say you know what would a world of worthy work look like what What kind of work do we need to do in regardless of uh, what kind of economy we live in?' Um, what is fulfilling for people, you know, and how do, how would, how might we get that done? And I think that's a really interesting uh, set of discussions to have. And the other very important discussion is, well, coming up with the most beautiful utopia uh, is no guarantee that it's going to happen. So then the, uh, the the question becomes, if there this is broadly speaking, you know, we can work out the details uh, as we go the a kind of world we want to have of say less work and and more fulfilling types of tasks and different ways of interacting with one another. If that is the world that we want to have, then okay, what do we have to do to uh, to make it happen? What are the sort of tendencies uh, that we have going right now uh, that if uh, sort of encouraged or, or given some um, useful information or, or direction, um, might move uh, move us along that path towards a, a sort of a, a more sustainable and egalitarian kind of future.
1: The Ned Ludd Radio Hour is a podo podcast written and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The theme music is internet song by apes of the state used with their generous permission Welcome. and the artwork is by Tom Humberston. I reckoning is not headed for Tom, I hope. For socials, go to nedludlibs.com and spread the word from there. Gather
0: kids. I'll tell you all some stories of what life looks like before the internet. wandered round our neighborhoods, aimlessly lighting shit and fireheads.